This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Newberger, editor of Not Even Past and your host for this episode of 15-Minute History. Today we're going to be talking about the historical background uh, behind the events going on in Ukraine today. Our guest is Charles King, who's a professor of international affairs and government at Georgetown University. And we are speaking to Charles via Skype. Hi, Charles. Hi, nice to be with you, Joan. Same here. It's great to have you to talk about this. Why don't we start, if you could, with just a very brief explanation of where we are today. It's the beginning of March. And uh, how did we get here? So things started last November when there was a small demonstration in the city of Kiev, which is the capital of Ukraine, that was in favor of Ukraine's uh, signing a trade and association agreement with the European Union. That demonstration was violently broken up by the Ukrainian government, which in turn brought out even more people into the streets and more and more joined until the demonstrations got very large. Uh, In January and February, those demonstrations turned violent so violent, in fact, that they ended up growing even even bigger in opposition to the Ukrainian government. Um, and toward the end of February, on February 22nd, the uh, demonstrators had taken over a number of government buildings. The president of Ukraine fled, uh, and a new government was put in place. In response to that, a new government that, that tended to be more pro-Western in its orientation, Russia invaded a portion of Ukraine called Crimea in the south, Uh, stationed its troops uh, there in Crimea, uh, claiming that ethnic Russians in Ukraine were under threat by this new, more pro-Western Ukrainian government. And that's where we are today in the standoff. Okay, great. That's where we are today. One of the things that makes this such a volatile situation is that uh, Russia and Ukraine seem to be at odds. So, And Russia and Ukraine have had, have a very long history, sometimes being part of the same country, sometimes not being part of the same country. Could you fill us in on the background of the relationship between Ukraine and Russia? Well, it is a, a complex and uh, long relationship. Vladimir Putin often refers to uh, Ukraine and Russia as being brotherly countries, fraternal um, countries. They were, of course, part of the same country uh, for most of modern history. First, the Russian Empire and then, of course, the Soviet Union. Uh, The territory that's in dispute, though, right at the moment, the the area of Crimea in the the south, this uh, sort of diamond-shaped peninsula that juts off of the bottom of Ukraine in the Black Sea, only became part of solidly Ukrainian territory in a kind of legal sense in 1954. Uh, When Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union, the administrative status of Crimea shifted from the Russian component of the Soviet Union to the Ukrainian component of the Soviet Union. At the time, that internal administrative change didn't really matter much. After all, it was just changing the dotted lines inside the territory of one single country. But when the Soviet Union broke up in 1991, that administrative change came to matter a great deal because, of course, then Crimea became part of the independent country of Ukraine uh, in the early 1990s and was no longer part of the Russian Federation. And it's that territory that is, uh, that's in dispute right at the moment. And why is it so important to Russia? Why isn't it just another little part of Ukraine? Well, it's important for a, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, there's a long sort of uh, history, partly mythical, partly real, uh, that ties uh, Crimea to both 
uh, Ukraine and to uh, and to Russia itself. It was, according to tradition, the place where uh, Saint Vladimir uh, first accepted Christianity in 988. Um, a, a version of Orthodox Christianity that came from the Byzantine Empire to the south, and that was the beginning of, uh, of a civilization known as Kievan Rus uh, that, that flourished much farther to the north uh, in the city, what is today the city of Kiev, and that Ukrainians look back on as the origin of their civilization. It was also the beginnings uh, of the Russian Orthodox Church. So both of these countries and cultures, in a way, uh, look on Crimea as being historically important in their own kind of national narratives. But in, in a much more immediate way, uh, Crimea is important for strategic reasons. There is a very important military or naval base there in the uh, city of the port of Sevastopol, that has now been an issue uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, in, in, in the 1990s and, and early 2000s, they managed to come to a really very workable agreement on sharing assets in this port. In 2010, a long-term lease agreement was signed between uh, Kiev and Moscow that allowed uh, Russian forces, Russian ships of the Black Sea Fleet uh, to be stationed in this port, even though the port was on Ukrainian territory. And the ships uh, are, are really lined up right next to each other inside uh, in, inside the port. Um, that has also been, though, in the in the current conflict, a, uh, a a source of struggle between Ukraine and Russia because Russia has essentially taken over all of the assets in that um, that military installation. So, is the, is the Black Sea Fleet, the fleet that's there in Crimea, critical to Russia's strategic interests? Well, it is in the in the sense that it's the largest uh, Russian military base in uh, warm waters and a more or less ice-free port um, all year round. It's uh, the rapid reaction force of the Russian Federation if uh, Russian ships and or Marines were ever to deploy into the Mediterranean. Um, those ships would come through the Bosphorus and Sea of Marmara and Dardanelles Straits into the uh, Mediterranean. It's also, in Russian naval history, a very storied and important uh, port. It was the uh, the central port that was attacked during the Crimean War in the 1850s. Tolstoy served on the battlements um, in the Crimean War. So it's, it's, it's a thing that is tied uh, to Russian naval history, in addition to being um, a very important strategic um, asset for Russia right at the moment. Okay, let's come back to politics for a second. So in 1991, the Soviet Union, the USSR, broke up. What, what kind of relationship did Ukraine and Russia have at that moment? Well, interestingly, the, the relationship throughout most of the 1990s ended up being um, rather good in a way. You had a, a string of leaders in Ukraine who had come out of the Soviet experience, um, who... Uh, uh, at the time when uh, Yeltsin was president in uh, in the Russian Federation, managed to get along and understand each other rather well. But what I think we've seen in the last 10 years or so is a real generational change, um, it is certainly in Ukraine and perhaps to a lesser extent in, in Russia. You have a generation of politicians and certainly a generation of voters uh, in Ukraine who are not schooled in the Soviet system, or at least didn't come of, of age in the Soviet system. They think of themselves, at least in Kiev and in western Ukraine, 
as as being Europeans, as being tied to Europe. They're not part of the same kind of old social network that, oddly enough, might have allowed a peaceful relationship between Russia and Ukraine to to emerge in the 1990s. And so I think that's part of the part of the shift in the cultural or strategic relationship between these two countries. Um, in a way, the two societies um, have moved farther and farther apart. That's certainly, I think people live in different kind of interpretive universes in uh, much of Ukraine and in Russia these days, in part because of Russian state-controlled um, media. But it's also the case that political elites are really no longer part of the same social network. Mm-hmm. So, and then what was the Orange Revolution? So the Orange Revolution was an, uh, a popular uprising in 2004, uh, one of a number of um, sets of popular demonstrations that were called in response to fraudulent elections. Uh, political scientists sometimes talk about um, the, the way in which hybrid regimes or competitive authoritarian regimes work. And these are um, governments that are more or less authoritarian when it comes to issues like human rights or rule of law or a free media, but also manage to have elections. And that is, in, in a way, a dangerous middle ground for these governments, because once you start having actual elections, people expect that you will have free and fair elections. And in 2004, um, uh, it, it became very clear that in presidential elections, uh, the, the votes were uh, being manipulated, and there was a popular movement uh, to uh, against the person who was uh, elected at that time, a man named Viktor Yanukovych. Um, the uh, Ukrainian government had to backtrack and allow the competitor in those elections, a man named Viktor Yushchenko, to come into um, to come into power. And the Orange Revolution produced, for a time, a um, a much more, in a way, pro-Western. Um, a government that was focused on eventual membership in the European Union, eventual membership in NATO. And that's the moment, I think, when uh, Vladimir Putin and, and, and the Russian government began to believe that Western powers were manipulating Ukraine, using it strategically to turn it uh, toward the West against Russia's interests. Let's talk about the ethnic composition of Ukraine. It's complicated. It's changed a lot over the last century. Um, and it seems to pose particular problems to political stability there now. Well, in a way, uh, that is certainly the, the case that the, the, the ethnic situation is complex, given the fact that Ukraine is a multi-ethnic country. About 78% or so of the population um, describe themselves as ethnic Ukrainians. About 17% describe themselves as ethnic Russians. And then there are smaller populations of lots of uh, other ethnic categories, uh, Romanians, Crimean Tatars, Bulgarians, uh, Poles, and Hungarians, and, and, and others in much smaller numbers. But I think we can overstate the degree to which that's criti- a critical component of what's going on right now, at least on the ground in Ukraine. Because it's perfectly reasonable, both in Ukrainian history and uh, uh, today, for a person to think of themselves as Ukrainian in an ethnic sense, but be a native Russian speaker, or to be bilingual or trilingual. Maybe they speak, you know, uh, multiple languages, Romanian, Ukrainian, Russian, or Crimean Tatar, or or other languages and have different cultural orientations. I think the, 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 the real dividing line, in a way, now 
is uh, between those who feel that the country's orientation in the future should be toward Europe and the European Union, perhaps even even NATO, and uh, those who are kind of comfortable being where they are in a kind of middle ground between uh, between Europe and Russia. So, in other words, the the divisions I think are probably more conceptual and political and strategic than strictly ethnic. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the economy then. Can you give us a, a sense of uh, what uh, Ukrainian and Russian economic ties were during the USSR, how they've changed since 1991, um, and where we are now? Well, of course, when both Ukraine and Russia were part of the same country, the Soviet Union, um, they were intimately uh, tied together. This was one market, one economy. Uh, factories that might produce goods in the Russian Federation re- relied on um, parts that were produced in Ukraine and um, and vice versa. So these these were intimately stitched together economies, and in fact, a single economy within, within this country. Uh, since then, of course, Ukrainian uh, the Ukrainian economy has diversified um, imports, exports, both to to and from the European Union, even the United States, farther afield. Even though Russia remains a very important part of uh, of uh, of the Ukrainian economy, not least in the energy sector, because a huge proportion, the vast proportion of uh, of Ukrainian energy, gas, for example, uh, comes from the Russian Federation, and it's also the case that a sizable amount of the natural gas that goes goes on to Europe comes. Through uh, from from the Russian Federation through lines that uh, come across Ukrainian territory. So the energy connections here between Russia, Ukraine, and Europe are fundamental. But right at the moment, the Ukrainian economy is in very very dire uh, straits. The value of the Ukrainian currency, the hryvnia, is is falling precipitously. Uh, the government is pretty close to broke. Um, and that was one of the things that I think motivated um, the previous president, Yanukovych, who was uh, just ousted by these popular protests in February. One of the things that motivated him to sign a large uh, trade and economic support deal with the Russian uh, Federation. It was the announcement of that deal and about $15 billion in Russian financial support uh, that caused even more protesters to come out into the central square in Kiev uh, because they saw this as a kind of backtracking on Ukraine's commitment uh, to Europe. So the economy is intimately tied up with the way average Ukrainians are thinking about the current situation. Does the dependence on Russian oil make, is, is that really the key issue? Does it make Ukraine a kind of hostage to Russian power? Well, it's certainly the case that uh, natural gas in particular is the, is the major issue here. And uh, Ukrainians have talked for a long time about the need for energy independence. In fact, Europeans um, increasingly talk about the need for energy independence from the Russian Federation, given that so much uh, of, of the gas comes from Russia via um, Ukraine. And so in a way, all of these issues are now uh, coming to the fore. And one of the things that has been discussed um, um, among U.S. policymakers just in, in recent days in the midst of this crisis has been ways of getting the U.S. Um, energy surplus, natural gas in particular, to uh, Ukrainian consumers. Mm-hmm. Well, are there any other issues that you think are really key to understanding what's going to happen in Ukraine? Well, one of the things that I think is is most important is the way in which the Russian Federation has uh, justified its intervention in Ukraine. Uh, the United States, of course, uh, just in the last few days, has denounced the transgression of Ukraine's national sovereignty, the deployment of foreign troops on Ukrainian soil without the consent of the Ukrainian government. But of course, to, to me, 
that's in a way not the key issue. Western powers have themselves transgressed national sovereignty and uh, you know, when it has, has suited their interests. The key issue, however, I think is Putin's justification for this. Because he has, he has said that the reason for those troops going into Ukraine uh, is the danger that the new government in Kiev presents to three categories of people Putin has named. Russian citizens, uh, Russian speakers, and a, a very sort of large and all-encompassing category that we might translate as compatriots, so, uh, the, the, which is a, which is a, a, a term that that you find the the, the Russians using frequently to describe the um, the group of people in Ukraine who have some kind of general cultural or um, or linguistic orientation toward. Uh, uh, toward Russia. So this compatriot category is one that is a kind of novelty. Russians often used it in the 1990s to talk about Russian, the Russian Federation's interests abroad, uh, but this, this idea of, of a compatriot, Sartechestvenik, is a, is, is, is a novelty in international law. In fact, if, if you take that idea seriously, that Russia has a, a requirement, a right to protect compatriots wherever they might live, then I think if I were living in Brighton Beach in Brooklyn, I might <laughs> a Russian invasion. Uh huh. Good. Um, thank you, Charles. This has been really helpful. Thanks for having me on. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.